We're back in the lectionary after, after our uh, series on church practices, which I hope uh, you uh, got to listen in on and be a part of and, uh, and wrestle with a little bit. I hope it enlightens some things for you. And we're uh, heading into the Advent season, but this on the church calendar is what is called Christ is King Sunday. And uh, what I'm really supposed to talk to you about is the kingship of Christ and what that means and the implications of that. And in some ways we'll talk about that, but the passage that, I was, uh, that is a part of the lectionary uh, is a little too short and it leaves a little too much out. And I saw something in it this week um, that I just never really noticed before. And as a preacher, that means one of two things. Either there's a new insight and an exciting topic to talk about, or it means I'm making something up that's not there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope and pray that it's the former and not the latter. If it is the latter, uh, please do uh, forgive me for it. Uh, But we're in John chapter 18, which actually picks up in the middle of uh, Jesus' trial. Uh, What happens before Jesus ends up on the cross, right? His his journey to the cross. And uh, they they just had, there's just like a few verses in uh, in the lectionary text. But to me, I really wanted to establish the entire context of this because I think there's something larger going on if you read more. And so uh, I know it's a lot of verses, but what I wanted to do is read more than what you've already heard tonight. I want to read in John chapter 18, I want to go from verse 15 to 38. And uh, there are pew Bibles if you want to follow along, or it should be up on the screen, uh, assuming I didn't mess something up, which I almost certainly did. Um, but let's, let's go ahead and read through all that, and then we're going to wrestle with the idea and the question that ends this passage, which is, what is truth? Um, which, you know, that's easy enough. That should take us five or ten minutes, right? Let's just, uh, we'll knock that out. Uh, So the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 15 through 38, say this. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple, I should say, this is right after the the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. uh, When the soldiers come, Peter, of course, draws his sword, cuts off someone's ear. Uh, Jesus rebukes him, heals the man's ears, and, and goes with them. Uh, into, uh, you know, to be arrested. Um, all that follows when they first ask, you know, he first says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And everyone just falls and hits the ground, which is a whole other great sermon at some point. That's, you know, that's only in the Gospel of John. But following that, verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Quote, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Quote, I have spoken openly to this world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogue or at temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's just bad luck, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the garden? Didn't I see you with him in the garden? 
parentheses, cutting off my <laughs> relative's ear. That's not in there, but it's a subtext. 27, again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman emperor. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30, If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Doesn't have the feeling it's going to be a very fair trial at this point, does it? They've already decided that he needs to be executed. We have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest and, uh, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. It's a great question. And I'm wondering, has there ever been a time for you, there hasn't been for me, has there ever been a time for you that was more difficult to know what is true than right now? When I was a kid, it it didn't feel this difficult, and not just because I was young, and when you're young, you know everything. It just didn't feel like it was this difficult to determine what was true. And we had way less information at our disposal. If you would have told 10-year-old Mike that one day I would have all the world's songs and movies and, que- and answers to all the world's questions in my pocket that I could access at any time, it would have blown my mind. I didn't have access to all that. And, and we still had all the same kind of stuff, right? We definitely had our urban legends. We had our rumors and our common knowledge, which was way more common than knowledgeable. But even as we kind of traded those stories and talked about those things and, and hey, did you hear this and did you hear that, we always kind of had... Uh, a grain of salt with it, right? There's always the right amount of suspicion that came with it. Now it is really hard to tell one thing from the next. Uh, For the young people in the room, I do not envy you. I don't envy you growing up in the age of social media, for sure. I definitely don't envy you growing up in an age of YouTube and memes and 24-hour news and disinformation campaigns and all of that stuff. The music thing is still really cool. I'm jealous that you're growing up with that. The rest of it, that you can take. It is hard to decipher what is true, what is reliable. What exactly can I root myself within? How can I orient myself towards this world in what is true? Right? Perhaps Pilate could be the spokesperson of our world right now, finally throwing up his hands in exasperation and exclaiming, what is truth? Right? I think today's story is instructive for a lot of reasons. Uh, we could spend the entire time talking about nonviolence, which I think is an important part of this, uh, of this text. 
But as I read it this week, I was struck with something I'd never really noticed before, and I was struck with kind of the story as a whole, and each of the characters struggle with what is true or not true, right? Each character engages it a little differently, responds a little differently, and I think we'll find ourselves in here if we look at all of them and what they do. Let's start with Peter. Now, Peter gets a bit of a bad rap in this story for his many miscues. Pulling out a sword, cutting off someone's ears, denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows. Uh, None of them look good on the resume. But before we start throwing too many stones, consider the position he is in. Think about really being in that place, in that garden when all the soldiers come. Think about everything you've given your life to, everything you believe about the world and about God is coming to a head in that moment. Think about the adrenaline and the confusion that he is trying to navigate in this situation. Right? Here comes the soldiers. To Peter's mind and really almost to everyone's mind, this is how it starts. This is how we fight and start the war and we crown Jesus king the way kings have always been crowned. So he pulls a sword He's not a very good aim. He only gets an ear, but it's something, right? He's there to fight alongside Jesus and install him as king, and then he gets reprimanded. Jesus heals the one person that he struck, and he gets reprimanded by the guy he was defending and the guy he assumed he was going to fight alongside and who he thought would be king. Peter's loose relationship with what is true with telling the truth after this is pretty understandable, even if it is problematic, right? The world is moving quickly under his feet. And so he chooses survival. He chooses to step back and reassess. He chooses to have a very loose relationship with the truth. The same guy who stepped out of the boat to walk on the water when no one else would, the same guy who was always the first to answer questions, the one guy who pulled his sword is now reticent. He knows it's the truth to say, yes, I am a disciple of this person. Yes, I've spent the last three years. Yes, he told me he would build the entire church upon me. Yes, he knows it's true to say yes when asked about his identity. But he chooses to say no. He chooses against it to stay safe, to, to try and uh, you know, feel less vulnerable, to try and figure out how this is all going to turn out. What is really true becomes subservient to what keeps him out of trouble and keeps him safe. And I get it. And I think we've all been there. I doubt there's a person in this room who has not pushed the boundaries of the credible in order to protect themselves. I did it on every first date. And if you have social media, then you're probably doing it on a daily basis to one degree or another. You're curating things in such a way as to portray yourself as something you are not, right? What is true? What is true is whatever gets me through whatever I'm struggling with, right? Peter is in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, what is true and what we orient ourselves around can get pretty negotiable pretty quick. What is true serves me, not the other way around. And I get it. I can't claim I would have done any different in that moment. So you have Peter, who has subjected his own survival and his own you know, uh, safety for what is true. Then you have Pilate. Uh, Pilate's an interesting character in the story because Pilate really has nothing at stake in the story. 
This is kind of below his pay grade. He's a, he's a Roman authority. All he's trying to do is make sure that a riot doesn't break out. He doesn't really care about this. He's not invested in it. Pilate is the one person who has the privilege of some kind of presumed objectivity here. He is the just the facts character in the story. Right? If he can just gather all the correct information, he will know what is true. He can have a clear and easy path to making and acting wisely. So he's just, ask, he's just trying to get the facts. And of course, that's, that's never an easy thing with Jesus, who likes to answer questions with questions and tell stories that have nothing to do with what you asked, right? Are you a king? What has he done wrong? What do you want? What is this all about? Pilate wants answers. Just give me the facts. If I have the facts, I'll know what to do. And Pilate just stays frustrated in this story because he can't get a direct answer about any of the facts. Pilate is experiencing the truth that just gather the facts is often more of an ideal than it is a reality. It's just never quite that easy or clean cut. Unfortunately, most of life is not an easy math problem. It's not two plus two most of the time. A whole lot of life falls into a different category. It can't be summed up in facts alone, right? Much of life is categorically different. It's, it's relational, which is far more messy, right? I can give you the facts about myself and Sarah and Lillian and Chapman, but that will not get to the truth of us. The facts are part of the truth. They play into it, but the truth is something bigger. One of the major jaw-dropping moments in my first year in seminary, and there was a lot of them, because I was one of those really gifted students that went into seminary already knowing everything about God. It was pretty much a formality that I was going there. Uh, And as it turns out, uh, seminary professors take that as a challenge. But one of the major jaw-dropping moments for me uh, happened when someone, the first professor made a distinction between facts and truth. In this way, we, we were talking about uh, the story of, uh, of Job. No, not the story of Job. We were talking about Jonah. We were talking about the story of Jonah. And someone asked the professor, is the story of Jonah historically factual, given like the fantastic nature of what happens, right? You, the storm thrown in the water, swallowed by a fish, fish in the, you know, in the fish's belly somehow, not digested, then thrown back up, and all these things. Like, they said, did this actually happen? Is this a historical fact? And the professor said, It might not have happened, or it might have. It might be a parable or something. I have no idea if it's true, and that doesn't really matter very much because I'm certain that it's truth. And then that just, you know, ate me alive for about a week. Because no one had ever talked that way around me before. I have no idea if it's true, and that probably doesn't matter very much because I'm certain it is truth, right? Truth is larger than just facts. I'm not saying it ignores them. I'm not saying that the facts don't matter or they can't help in discerning something. But it's different, right? Is, is the prodigal son true? Well, no, it's, it's not a, you know, a biography about a guy with two sons. Who, it's a story, but it's truth. And perhaps this distinction gets at Pilate's frustration and his exclamation at the end. What is truth? How can I possibly know that? C.S. 
you have Pilate, the just the facts kind of guy, and those just aren't cutting it. You have Peter, who's kind of covering his own backside here, and the truth kind of is subservient to that need to protect himself. And then perhaps the scariest and most relevant to us, you have the crowd who has brought Jesus to this point. And this crowd has no struggles with their confidence. The most striking and uh, pertinent quote in the text today comes when the crowd is asked for the specifics of the charges against Christ. And I'm not sure, and I've never really picked up on these two little verses before, and this is all I could think about all week as I was reading this story. When asked about the specifics against the charges, what has this man done wrong? Uh, it says this, verse 29 and 30. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Their answer is, quote, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Listen to that exchange again. What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. This quote and the lack of logic within it is as absurd as it is familiar. Is he guilty? Yes. Why? Because we wouldn't have put him on trial if he wasn't guilty. Well, that settles it. Thanks. I had, you know, as, as things tend to happen when you're writing a sermon like this, I had this exact kind of thing happen to me this week with my work. Uh, we're working with some state agencies on some funding and grants and stuff, and they're supposed to be working alongside of us and uh, helping us make sure we, you know, do everything the way we should and follow all the correct rules. And, uh, and they're supposed to let us know if they see something that we can need to correct. And uh, one of them uh, sent me something and said, uh, we, f- we need you to do a better job of following internal controls on this thing. Uh, I don't know how they know about our internal controls, but they told us we need to do better. And so I said, great, we want to do the best we can. What internal controls do I need to do better? And they said, well, you need to do better on the internal controls that we noticed weren't going right. That was the answer, <laughs> which is just a snake eating its tail. Like, I, got it, taken care of it, done. Justice served, truth achieved, right? But the crowd is something that should be familiar to us. This crowd demonstrates our humanity's undying commitment to truth as whatever confirms what I already believe. It's called confirmation bias, right? And this is us. I remember reading about a study, uh, and I, I couldn't find it again, but I'm positive that existed. I remember reading about it. I wish I could quote it exactly, but I remember reading about a study in which they took people and they kind of asked them their uh, opinions about different kinds of political statements and stances and positions, right? And they would have people identify kind of what school of thought, you know, and, you know people, I'm, I'm very conservative or I'm a, a stout liberal or I'm a whatever, and they would kind of have, claim their camp, and they would ask them these questions. And what the researchers found out is that people's opinion of whatever uh, thing they put in front of them was mostly based on the attribution. In other words, someone might claim to be strongly conservative or staunchly liberal, but, for instance, the conservatives would really like a Bernie Sanders quote as long as it was attributed to Donald Trump or to someone that's a part of their, fan, their the group that they like. So as long as you put a different name underneath it, they would agree with it or disagree with it. And it worked the other way as well. Uh, a, sta- a staunch liberal would really like some conservative economic policy as long as it was attributed to the Democratic Party instead of the Republican, and vice versa. It just both parties, 
uh, who, both people who claimed both parties, mostly what they agreed or disagreed with was based on whether or not it was their team or not their team that they thought agreed with it. Right. We start with the accepted premise that my side is good, my side is moral, my side is correct. And then whatever is believed to have proceeded from that good, correct, moral group must be good, moral, and correct. No matter what it might be. It's why everything that happens in our divided country right now, uh, whatever the situation is, whatever the tragedy is, whatever the thing is, we all, everyone looks to see, all right, so what are the conservatives saying? What are the liberals saying about it? So I know how to feel about it. Because whatever they think must be right. right? We, we can all confess there's a lot of that going on right now, right? This is why we like conspiracy theories so much. They confirm our biases. And I know you're thinking, yeah, you're right. Those people do like conspiracies. So does your side. January 6th was really people dressed up like those I voted for, but not really them in order to make us look bad. Sure. On the other side, the news network spent a year talking about you know, the former president as a Russian spy installed by Putin because he has some nasty tape that would make him look bad. Turns out most of that was suspect and not really true. But it confirmed my bias. But the January 6th thing confirms my bias. And carry that out ad infinitum across social media and YouTube and you get to where we are today. We start with the premise that I am good, I am right, I am the moral one, and everything flows from that quote-unquote truth. Right? This is a difficulty I have when parenting. I'm compelled to say to my child, you are smart, you are kind, you are good. And you think, well, of course you should be saying that to your child. But I'm not positive that's exactly what I should be saying to my child. As opposed to saying something like, that was a smart decision. That was a very kind thing to do. That was a good thing that you did right there. And you see the difference? Because at the end of it, if I am good, if I am smart, if I am all those things, if that's who I am, then anything that comes from me is those things too. As opposed to understanding that I can make good decisions and bad decisions. I can be kind or I can be mean. I, can, I have the, you know, the ability to be both of those things. Not everything that flows from the pure stream that is Michael Dixon is manna from heaven. Sorry to break your heart. I know, that, I know you were struggling with that. And you can, you can see what happens when people <laughs> have been brought up one way or not the other, Right? You can definitely see it in a lot of people's terrible apologies, especially public apologies, when they've done something wrong. Or you've probably gotten this personally from someone, too. They've done something wrong, they've kind of been caught with their hand in the cookie jar, they've hurt someone or whatever, and they want to say they are sorry, but they also really need to reiterate that they really are a good person. They can't just be sorry for doing something that was terrible. This is how religion creates monstrous human beings. The crusades, genocide, slavery, these are all demonstrably heinous and evil things, but they were consecrated because the source of them was assumed to be a good and holy people.
And I genuinely believe that this kind of disastrous view of truth is why we are in such bad shape politically and otherwise in this, in this country. We have a total lack of humility, an abundance of self-righteousness that comes along with this. I'm one of the good guys. Therefore, and truth flows through it. There are all these different relationships to truth. Truth serves my needs and helps protect me. Truth is just kind of the facts and it's very you know, wooden and, and you can just make it work like a math formula. Truth is whatever confirms what I already want to believe and know about myself and the world. These are all relationships to truth that we mistakenly embrace. And then there's Jesus who just doesn't neatly fit into anything. And then you have Christ, and, and, and Jesus talks about truth in a categorically different way. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus says, I'm here to testify to the truth. Jesus says, those who listen to me belong to the truth. Christ locates ultimate truth within himself. Christ claims to be that North Star, that point of orientation, which does not mean that Jesus is chiefly looking for your intellectual assent, for you to say yes to any uh, certain theological premises at all. For Christ, the truth does not stand outside of an embodied and lived life. There's not some special knowledge out there to obtain. That's called Gnosticism. No, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, right? Christ doesn't present the truth to Pilate as theology or a list of things to believe in or religious convictions. He points to the way people live. Christ points to his followers' complete lack of violence in the moment when they should be most ready to fight. He points to the way and the life they are living. Because the way, the life, and the truth can never be separated. Elsewhere in Scripture, John the Baptist is in prison and he's starting to doubt whether or not Jesus is actually the one that he was supposed to prepare the way for. You know, he's having questions. He sends out his followers to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we have been waiting for? And Jesus answered him with the lived reality of his life. He talks to him about the way and the life he is leading because that is the truth. I'm healing people. I'm loving people. I'm lifting people up. That is how you know I'm the truth. Because of my way in life. For Jesus, the truth is a life lived. For Jesus, the truth is a life of love truly embodied in a messy world. And that is the truth we can hold on to. That is the truth we can orient our, our lives around even when the facts are fuzzy and it's hard to understand what is, uh, what is going on out there. Truth is loving your neighbor. Truth is treating your enemy like they're your family. Truth is a life of giving instead of taking. Truth is humility instead of pride. Truth is sacrificial love that feels no compulsion to defend itself and does not settle for this world's false and meaningless kingdoms. That is truth. And it doesn't always make you feel safe. 
and it might not always neatly fit in with whatever facts you have presented with in that day, and it will absolutely not always confirm what you want to believe about yourself and the tribe. In fact, as often as not, it's the opposite. But the way of Christ, his life of love, is what is ultimately true in this world. Commitments to any other truth is a catastrophic waste of time. For according to Jesus, there is no other way to God than the truth of his way and his life. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this truth. We are grateful for this something that we can hold on to, that we can look at and study and meditate upon. We are thankful for this point of orientation, this thing by which all of our lives can then be understood and defined. We are thankful for the truth of your way and your life. God, may we be a people who belong to the truth because we listen to your voice. Lord, may we put aside the politics, may we put aside the tribalism, may we put down our swords, may we uh, swallow our words that do not build up. God, may we be a different kind of people building a different kind of kingdom because we believe in a different truth in this world. May we walk the way of your life. Lord, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name.